Go ahead and take your Bible out. We'll be in Psalm 7. Psalm chapter 7. Next week we're going to look at Psalm 8 together. We'll do a couple more psalms in this series before we start our fall series together. Just crazy we're there, getting close to fall. Psalm chapter 7. If you turn there, you'll see at the beginning of Psalm 7, it says it is written by David. And it says this is a psalm that he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, there isn't a lot known uh, about this. Nobody knows for certain, as we look at this psalm together, the exact event that David is maybe speaking to or speaking about. But what we do know is King Saul comes from this tribe. Benjaminite, and most feel that this is one of his followers, probably. Uh, you will remember King Saul and David often had many trials uh, together in their relationship. Saul did not like David. He was very threatened by David and oftentimes tried to kill uh, David. And David, though, on the flip side, had a couple of opportunities to kill Saul himself, but he never took those opportunities you remember, he one time took part of his robe, uh, took some of his belongings at one time to let the king know, hey, I, I could have killed you. The Lord had given you to me today, but I did, not, I did not take that opportunity because you are the king of God's people. It's not my job to do that. I, I'm not the one to do that. I don't, I don't want to, to do that. And throughout David's life, it seems that King Saul and his court and his followers were a thorn in David's side. And many say that this is where this psalm comes from. That's why this psalm was written, why David would pen this, because of the trials that he would face from people within King Saul's court. And so what you have is you have David feeling, as he's writing this psalm, you have David feeling persecuted. And he feels persecution from people just simply because of who he is, that he was called by God to be the king of Israel. It wasn't because of fault of David. It wasn't because of sin in his life or anything that he had done against these people. David just simply felt persecuted because he was the chosen king. And these people didn't like that God had chose him as king. And so what they wanted for him is they wanted David to die. They wanted him to be dead. They wanted a, a new king. They wanted somebody else to come in his place. And so this psalm, as I'll read it here in a little bit, it deals with persecution. Persecution in the life of a, of a Christian, of one of God's children, of one of God's followers. And it, it's out, honestly, it's, it's a hard sermon to preach because as I look at you and as you look at me, I would guess many of us today haven't experienced great persecution just simply because of our faith. Right, I'm not talking about this morning the struggles of life. We all have, we all have struggles in this life, and we can't label that persecution. Uh, like an example, I would give me and my son were mowing a lawn this week, and my my lawnmower just decided I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. And I wasn't at my house; I was at somebody else's house, and it was a pain. I had to call somebody else here at the church to help me. We had to load the, just, you, know, you know what I'm talking about, just all those problems. I couldn't go to the Lord that night and say, Lord, I faced the fires of persecution today and I've withstood it. No, that was just a problem, right? That was just, just a normal problem that all of us face. I'm talking about real 
persecution that we, we as Christians face because of our faith, because of whose we are. Now, just because that might not happen a ton in our life, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm sure it has happened to you in some way, shape, or form. Maybe you tried to share the gospel with a family member and that didn't go too well. They weren't too appreciative of it. Maybe you stood up for something scripturally at work and because of that you have faced backlash. I'm sure that that has happened uh, to many of us uh, in this room. As we look throughout the Christian world today, persecution is actually pretty normal for a lot of Christians. You can look at different places and find different websites. Actually, persecution.com is one that you could go to. They have uh, lists of things that you can be praying for based on countries and different things. But right now, all around the world, there are brothers and sisters of ours in the Lord who've been saved by God's grace, who, who love the Lord, and they're imprisoned because of their faith. Or there are those who are facing death because of their, just simply because of their faith. It's not because they're bad people, but it's just because where they live It is not like that they're Christians. And so persecution is definitely alive and well, and it has been a trademark of our faith ever since the ascension of Christ himself. The New Testament is full of martyrs. We see this right away with Stephen. There's a book, maybe you've heard of this book before. It's a classic book. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was written in the 1500s, and it's a, it's a book on a lot of the martyrs in the faith all the way up to that point, and it's been edited many times since then, so you can find even more recent stuff in the newer editions. But it is an interesting read. I would encourage you to get it and to read it just to see that your lineage as a Christian is filled with blood. It's filled with death. It's, it's filled with Christ's followers being executed simply because they are Christ's follower, because they love the Lord. And so as we approach this psalm this morning, I do want it to be personal in our life. I I want us to think about our own life and maybe some of the struggles that we have because of persecution, but I also want to be reminded that we do live in a very special place, being in America with the freedoms that we have, to be able to live and and worship God and, and live according to God's word, honestly, with not too much repercussion right? But it doesn't mean that one day it might not come. And so we have to be ready for that. And again, some of you might be going through that currently. And so I hope that this psalm is encouraging to you as we look at it together. So let's read uh, Psalm 7. It says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all of my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, If there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. And, O, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. 
God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Then in the last verse, I will give to the Lord the thanks to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. As we approach this psalm, one of the first things that I think we notice in verses 1 and 2 is we notice how personal this is. David cries out to God at the very beginning, O Lord, my God. And we see this personal relationship that David has with God. And this is something that we should not deny as believers either of our personal relationship with our Lord, with our God. We do have this. Now, I know that you often will hear from me up here, and I believe, I, I know that this is true, that we talk about what God has done for us as Christians as he's brought us together. I don't believe in Lone Ranger Christianity. I don't believe that you are saved and then you just do your own thing apart from the people of God. That's not how this works. We are saved and we are brought into a family. And God puts us into a church family and we are to live that life together, to be there for one another and to care for one another. Uh, we got to remember, we are called the, the bride of Christ, right? And we are brought to him together. So I don't want to push that aside, but yet in the midst of that, God saves us personally, doesn't he? God shows us his love through Jesus, his son, in a personal way. And that is what David is proclaiming here. He understood that it is God who called him to be king. God chose him to be king. And just like that, God calls us to be a part of his family. And so David had a personal relationship with the Lord where he would speak to him and Pray to him. And us too. We have a relationship with the Lord as well. Where David would cry out, Oh Lord my God, we have the privilege today as children of God to do the same thing. We get to go to the Lord and say, Oh Lord my God, you have saved me. I'm, I'm calling out to you. I'm coming to you in time of distress or whatever it might be. Because that's what David was going through in this moment. But we have this personal relationship and it is a great privilege of ours to be able to to call out to him, to know him and to be known by him so that to know that he hears us and that he loves us. And so David is crying out to God. He says, oh Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. He, he wants it to be known and he wants to cry out to God. I'm, I'm seeking refuge in you and, and only in you. And why does he say that? Well, he gets, it gets kind of bad. He says, they're tearing me apart like a lion. I'm afraid that that's going to happen. My enemies are surrounding me like a, like a lion would and I'm afraid I'm just going to be ripped apart. I don't know if you've got to this point in your life ever, but the Bible does tell us, when I, th when I heard that, the lion ripping us apart, it, it reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 5. Because in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, when Peter is writing to the church, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is something we as believers face. And maybe you've experienced that times of great temptation or times of great trouble where it seems Satan is doing his best to destroy you. That's how David feels in this moment. He's saying, 
my God, help me. In you I take refuge. You alone can help me during this time. And so help me to find refuge in you. Protect me. And this is our same cry as we go to God saying, God, Satan seems to be pulling me at every way, turning me at every time he can turn me. God, Lord, help me because the world can't help me. I can't even help myself in this moment. I need to take refuge in you. Help me to find refuge in you and in you alone. Well, David continues on in verses 3 through 5, and he does something that I think honestly would be pretty nerve-wracking for us to say and pray. Because what does he say in verses 3 through 5? He says, search me. David feels in this instance, again, whatever he's facing, that it is 100% uncalled for. He feels in this moment that he has done nothing wrong, that everything that is coming against him is at the fault of somebody else, not of him. And so he calls out for God and he says, he says search me, see if there's anything wrong, if there's any, anything wrong that I have done. And many of the commentators, if you study this, think that he's, again, describing his relationship with King Saul. Saying, I haven't done anything wrong to King Saul. In fact, I could have killed him many times and I haven't. And this proves I'm not in the wrong here. The people around me are the ones in the wrong. And so David is going to God and revealing his heart and saying, search within me and see, I have done nothing wrong. They persecute me. My enemies are coming against me simply because I'm yours. That's why it's happening. And so David is willing in that moment to say, search me, O Lord. Try me. See if there's anything wrong within me. I think this is something that we have to be honest about and be realistic about in our lives is wondering the persecution I am facing today. Could you say, search me, O oh God, and see that I'm not at fault in this? See, there's, there's a lot of times in my life where that couldn't be the case. I might be correct in what I'm saying, but the way that I'm going about it is 100% wrong. Something that comes to my mind when I, went, when I went to school, the kids in my school knew that I was a Christian. I didn't hide that. I wasn't, I wasn't ashamed of that. Now, don't get me wrong. I wasn't going around handing out tracts all the time. That wasn't my experience either. But they, they knew that I was a Christian, and there was another girl in my school who was a Christian. And I handled the situation horribly once. It's one of the, I'm, I'm so ashamed that I handled it this way. I, like, yelled at her because of her sin and said, you're embarrassing us as Christians. Stop doing that. But I did not do it in a good way. What I said was correct. But I did it in front of everybody. Right? And so, if I were to go to God and say, God, she's messing everything up, and because of her, we're facing this backlash, I couldn't say, though, God, search me, because I've done nothing wrong. When I look back at that, it's like, no, I did a lot wrong to deserve what I would get from that conversation. There was a fault in me. I think sometimes we as Christians have to be a little more honest as we're dealing with people who are lost, when we're dealing with people who are persecuting us, we have to be a little more honest to say, there's quite a bit I'm doing wrong in this. The way I'm treating them, the way I'm speaking to them, the way I'm broadcasting this, the way I'm handling this, I don't know if it's being kind or loving. And so I probably do deserve this. There's probably plenty of Christians. I see it on YouTube. There's, there's a lot of Christians today who like to make YouTube videos of them just being straight jerks to non-Christians. And I think that person should not kneel and trust in Christ. What they should do is punch you in the face. That's what you deserve. 
Because you're just being absolutely rude to them. You're not being loving, you're not being kind in any way whatsoever. And then these same people will be on YouTube talking about, well, we got kicked out of the Mormon temple again. It's like, yeah, I would have kicked you out of my house. I don't want you around. You're not being, doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're facing this persecution, not because you're a Christian, because you're mean, because you're unkind. See, when David would go before God and say, oh, Lord, my God, I seek refuge because of the persecution I'm facing, he was able to say, search me. Search my heart. See, that's why I had uh, Pastor Spencer read what he read a little bit ago. See, in that instance in David's life, he was not able to say, search me, because why? He knew he was in the wrong. It took, it took that little parable for him to realize it, right? And then he was like, ooh, this is why I'm facing hardship. It's my own sin. It's my own struggle. This isn't persecution. And so we have to be willing to go to God and say, God, look within Help me to know, am I doing something wrong here? Am I facing these struggles because I'm not actually behaving in the way that I should behave? Or is this real persecution coming my way? We have to be willing to look within. Well, David continues on in verses 6 through 7, and he asks for God's protection again. And he does it in an interesting way because he uses very strong language in verse 6. And he says, God, awake, arise, as if he's sleeping. Now, we know God never sleeps, and I don't think David thought that God slept, but he, he's saying, God, be, be awakened to what is going on here. Again, I, I don't know if you've been in these situations before, but I'm guessing you have. Those times when you pray to God, it just feels like nothing, right? You, you pray to God, and it feels like nothing. And the pastor tells you, and other Christians tell you, be patient, keep going to him, but yet nothing A couple days of this turns into a couple weeks of this can turn into a couple months of this. I think this is where David is. And that's why he's saying, God, awake. Help me. This time of trouble is excruciating. I'm afraid that they're going to kill me. They're they're encroaching all around and you alone can give me salvation. And so awaken and, and help me here. Be there for me. And he says that when this happens, everybody is going to praise you. He says that in verse 7. Let the assembly of the people be gathered about you over at return on high. When your salvation comes in this time and in this instance, it's not just me that's going to praise you, but the, the whole family of God is going to praise you. All the nation is what David is talking about here, is going to praise you. That should be something, again, where us as a church family join together. Right? When one of us are seeking God, we're seeking his face Day in and day out, weeks turn into months, and we don't know what is happening, but yet God does answer the prayer. God sees us through. Those are times of rejoicing, not just for you, but for us as a church family. But we'd have to know about it, wouldn't we? (laughs) We'd have to be willing to share about it and and to talk about it and talk of the good news of what Christ has done for us again so that we can lift praise to him. God, protect me, and when he does, well, then let's praise him because God is a righteous judge. And so we should praise him for it. As we get to verses 8 and 10, we see judgment come into the picture. David first calls on God to judge him. Notice what he calls him to judge him on. So he continues here. He says, judge me, number one, according to righteousness and integrity. So David calls out to God, judge me according to my righteousness and according to my integrity. 
And then he starts to include others in this. So that was a personal call of judgment. But then he says, God, establish the righteous. So judge the righteous. Let them be judged and be established. And then lastly, he says, and save the upright in heart. Notice how God recognizes that it's God who is the judge in these instances, not himself. There's nobody else who is the judge but God alone. And sadly, I think this is lost on many people today. And it's really what leads to the next part of the psalm that we'll get to. But you have people in your life, and maybe at times this is how you handle things too, but these people act as if, if I just act like God's not the judge, then he's not. That's not the case. The Bible tells us very clearly, there is one judge, and he is righteous, and he is perfect, and he is just, and that is God. And whether you believe in him, whether you don't believe in him, whether you love him, whether you don't love him, one day, you will face the judge. You can do that. I live my life, honestly, as if there is no cops out there who pull people over for speeding. That's how I live. I just block it out of my mind. They're not going to be here. They're not there. And I just act like that's never going to happen in my life. I hope it doesn't. But one day that could very easily happen to me. And whether I thought it would happen or not, there it is. Ticket in hand, having to pay the penalty. I think we have to realize that with God. He is the judge. I'm not the judge. Your wife isn't the judge. Your husband isn't the judge. Your parents. Your parents are not your judge. It is God who is the judge. And in the end, we will stand before So this then leads David in thinking about this. In verse 10 he ends, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Because David is confident that that describes him. I'm upright in heart in this. But the word isn't so well for those who fall into the category of verse 11 and 13. Because David went on to say, God, he's a righteous judge. And then this is a scary thing. A God who feels indignation every day. What David is pointing out to us in verse 11, what he's crying out is he's saying, God is judging every day. You see, we, we talk about a day of judgment, and that's happening. But God is the judge right now, at all times. And the Bible tells us here that in his righteousness, in his perfect judgment, every single day there is indignation in God against sin. Yes, God is loving, God is kind. But then God is also just. And because God is just, sin needs to be dealt with and is being dealt with and will be dealt with and has been dealt with. But it angers God that there is sin. It is against his plan. And so as we get to verses 12 and 13, these are terrifying verses. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. That's not wet with water. It's wet with blood. He's prepared for him deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. That's, that, that says that that's imagery, so the sword feels like close combat. The imagery here with the bow is, even if you think you're far away from God, his, his bow is going to get you. His bow is going to get you. You can't run from this. And God does not miss. He never misses his mark. And so these are terrifying verses. This, these verses led Spurgeon to pen this in the treasury of David, 
This is with verse 12 and verse uh, 13. He wrote, what blows are those which will be dealt by that long uplifted arm? God's sword has been sharpening upon the revolving stone of our daily wickedness. And if we will not repent, it will speedily cut us in pieces. Turn or burn is the sinner's only alternative. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. Even now the thirsty arrows longs to wet itself with the blood of the persecutor. The bow is bent. The aim is taken. The arrow is fitted to the string. And what, O oh sinner, if the arrow should be let fly at you even now? Remember, God's arrows never miss the mark and are every one of them instruments of death. Judgment may tarry, but it will not come too late. The Greek proverb saith, the mill of God grinds late, but it grinds to powder. I was interested in that phrase because I had heard it, that turn or burn. It's not turn and burn, which is Top Gun. It's turn or burn. I started doing a little research on that, and I come to find out, and I didn't know this, this is actually a style of preaching. I'd never heard it used in that way. I've heard of hellfire and brimstone preaching. And turn or burn, I guess, is described as hellfire and brimstone preaching. And so maybe that has a negative connotation in your mind. But that's not necessarily what I think the point is here. There is truth in that phrase to sinners. Turn or burn. The Bible gives only two options. Eternity with Christ, through Christ, or eternity away. And the New Testament speaks of a place called hell, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? where there's struggle and pain. It's not, it's not a good thing. And that comes after the judgment. And so the reality is, for some of us here this morning even, you haven't trusted in Christ, you, you've never been saved by God's grace through the blood of Christ, and what you keep saying to yourself, and this could be a teenager, it could be an adult, it could be whatever, but what you keep saying to yourself is, let's push it off a little longer. Let's wait a little longer. I run across this with people my age all the time. I'll do that when I have kids, the ones younger than me say. Well, then they have kids. We'll do that when our kids aren't so busy in sports anymore. When they're not so active, then we'll start to deal with this. Listen, there is a problem with that. Tomorrow simply is not promised. You do not know the day of judgment, but the day of judgment for you could be right now. It could be very soon. And I don't say that to frighten you. I'm not one who wants to frighten people into heaven. That's not usually my, my style, but it is the truth. That's what David is saying here. The judge stands with his sword ready and ready to wet. The arrow is bent and prepared with the deadly weapons and the fiery arrows. And today for you could be judgment. And you simply cannot go before God and say, God, well, you know what I was going through. My, my kids, they never could have sat in there. They couldn't have sat in those pews. They would have disrupted everything, and so we were just kind of waiting until that was over. That doesn't work. Well, God, you know, I was working on my career, and I was working on this, and so I had these buddies, and I didn't want to hurt their feelings, and so I, just, I, I was going to deal with it later. 
Well, then the answer is, there's no later. There's no later. You've made your choice, and you've made your decision. And as we look at these verses, verse 12 and 13, as I said, they're, they're terrifying. Because we know death can come in a moment. And we shouldn't wait. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul writing to this church, he says, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We shouldn't sit and wait. No, today is the day. If God is speaking to your heart and the Holy Spirit is impressing on you, man, I, I think this is me that's being talked about here. Well, then maybe you need to respond today. You need to trust in Christ today. Don't wait. Come to the Lord. Why? Because living in sin is foolish. And David shows us that here in the text. Look, verses 14 through 16 talk about the foolishness of the wicked. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. That little section is very similar to what we heard last week in Psalm 1. Right? Don't stand, sit, all that stuff with sinners. Though they conceive, they're pregnant, and then they give birth. All sin. 15. The wicked makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull. His violence descends. This is the biography of the wicked. This is the story of those who are not a part of the family of God. They conceive evil. They're pregnant with mischief. They give birth to lies. They dig these pits. And sadly what happens is they fall into the traps themselves. All the evil that they intended on God, all the evil that they intended on his people is their own destruction. And as I mentioned, in our country, we have it pretty easy, but I think honestly this is something that we're seeing happen in our country. Are we not? The sin of the wicked are just setting up traps for themselves to where they don't know what to do. You can look at one of the most controversial topics of gender. We have a Sunday school class that's talking about it right now. When you get rid of male and you get rid of female, you don't have a good ending because you're going to fall into a trap where things start to not make sense and it starts to get pretty chaotic and crazy. You have no base anymore. You have nothing to stand on. You have no truth. And so then really anything can go. But when anything goes, nothing works. You have to have something. And I think our country and our, a lot of our friends are starting to see this play out. It's like you've dug this hole for yourself and now you fill in it. What are you going to do? How are you going to get out of it? Because David says their violence and their destruction that they intended for God and his people falls on their own head. You see, the only way to be spared of the destruction of God is to be a child of God, is to not be part of the wicked. And the only way that we can be a child of God is done through the blood of his son, Jesus, the son of God. You know, as we're reading a psalm like this, and I think this is a good thing to say every time we read a psalm, can you imagine Jesus singing this psalm? Jesus sang this psalm. Jesus prayed this psalm. When I, when I read this, I could see Jesus praying this psalm in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're all around me. 
Check my heart. No sin. Jesus was perfect, right? But here they come. They're coming and they're digging a pit. They're coming with all this wickedness. But God, what they don't understand is it's their destruction, not mine. It's their destruction that is coming. We can see the life of Christ in these verses so plainly and so clearly. So just imagine him praying this in the temple one day or singing this with some of his family as they sing this psalm, knowing where he is going, knowing what is going to happen in his life. It's interesting that at the end of this, David ends with praise, doesn't he? Verse 17 is a verse of praise. I'll give to the Lord the thanks to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. I think this is hard for us because it's difficult for us to praise God even in the midst of persecution and struggle. Right? It's hard because we don't always understand because we think, I'm doing everything right. <laughs> right? Whatever it might be, you know, you might, you might have a, a parent who you've been loving and caring for and they're not a Christian, and you've been sharing the gospel with them, and all you get in return is hate. <laughs> I know some of you are going through that. You're trying to care for them. You're trying to love them. You're trying to be a good child like you're supposed to do. And all you get in return is scorn from them, or you're just not doing enough, or whatever it might be. And you, you feel that, don't you, at times of like, why am I going through this? Why, why am I facing this? Because I I feel like I'm doing everything, everything right, but yet there's struggle. Well, you're in good company when you feel that way because that's exactly how David felt as he penned this. But yet what David teaches us is when we feel that way, God still deserves our praise because as children of God, we know that he is a perfect, righteous judge. And for those of us who've been saved by God's grace through his son, we have Christ's righteousness we have Christ's heart given to us. And we can actually pray exactly what David prayed, saying, Oh Lord, search me. Because when he searches you, what he finds is the blood of his son. Perfection. Lord, know me. And when he knows you, there is Jesus again. And so no matter the persecution, no matter the struggle, no matter if our country just completely turns its head on Christianity and really wants to attack us, guess what we as Christians still have to do? Praise him. We still have to praise him. Why? Because he is still worthy of our praise. He's still worthy of our adoration because our country, our family, our friends can never take away the blood of Christ that is on us. They can't steal that. They can't rob that. Or they can't ridicule you and shame you enough to take that away from you. They, they cannot do that. God has cemented that forever. And it is yours. And so that's why David can praise him. I will give the Lord thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. During good times, during bad times, during the easy seasons of life, but also during the difficult seasons of life. Some of you have been alive a lot longer than me. 
You've rode the roller coaster of life through the ups and through the downs. And I would dare say you understand this psalm way better than I do at this point. But I want to encourage those of you who've lived that to keep praising the Lord. Keep, keep honoring him during those times when all of a sudden you don't see very good. And all of a sudden you can't walk very good. When I think about that stuff, that's saying so hard. You know, I'm the guy who's like, take the keys from that dude. He should not drive anymore. But I'm also going to be the guy who says, if you touch my keys, I'm going to break your leg. Don't touch them. I get it. The difficulty of getting older, but yet praising God in the midst of it. The difficulty of raising kids and just feeling like you're bouncing off the walls and going back and forth, and then you also want to be a faithful Christian, and so you're trying to go to church, and you're, you're trying to love the Lord well, and you also know that you should be sharing the gospel, and so you're trying to do that, but yet life just seems so difficult and so hard. What does David teach us to do in those moments? We call out to the Lord. We admit our struggles. We admit our sin. We admit the difficulties we're facing, but we never stop praising the Lord through it and honoring him through it. That's one of the great things about us gathering each week is that's what we're doing together. Because the fact is, for some of you, this week probably was hard. And you limp in here this morning and you really haven't praised God all week. But you know what the blessing of a church family is? You get to walk in this room and what we're saying is, come on, brother, I'll start, I'll praise. You'll catch on. Right? We remind each other, let's go. And so maybe you're like me, the first song you don't really sing because you're like, I just don't feel it. Second song, mumble it maybe a little bit. But then you listen to the sermon. You're reminded of God's goodness. And when you get to the third song, you can finally sing the song. And you find yourself praising God regardless of what's happened. You're praising him because you know he alone is worthy of that praise. That's what David got to at the end of the psalm. And I hope that's what we do this morning as well as we get ready to stand and to sing one last song together. To praise him despite what it is we're facing in our life, whether persecution or some other struggle or trial, David shows us in the end, God alone is worthy of our praise and deserving of our praise. Let's bow together this morning. I want to pray. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the word of God. The fact is, some of you need to respond to him today, seeking after Christ for salvation and forgiveness of sins because you never have. And maybe in what we read in verses 12 through 13, it struck a chord for the first time. I don't know, maybe this week you experienced something where you realized, I am not immortal. You realize death could be coming at any moment, and it's the first time that's ever creeped into your mind. And so maybe you stand here ripe for the picking this morning, saying, God's been speaking to me about this. Maybe you need to confess your sin and trust in Christ, who loves you and died for you so that you could be forgiven of your sin. Or maybe this morning the way we respond to the word of God is saying, God, I've always called it persecution, but actually there's sin in my life that needs to be dealt with. That's why I'm facing these struggles. Or maybe it could be, God, I know persecution would come if I stand up for your word here. And maybe your prayer today is, God, give me the boldness to stand, to be willing to face it, 
and to be willing to praise you through it. I don't know, but I just hope that you'll respond how the Lord leads this morning. God, I thank you for Psalm 7. God, you know that your church will face persecution, and it does face persecution. God, there are pastors and missionaries and Christians all over this world right now imprisoned just because of their faith with no hope of ever getting out. No trial will happen. And maybe even at some point they'll just disappear, never be heard of again. And God, we could look at that and say, well, what is the point? But God, we know that this might happen. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters who face persecution day in and day out because of their faith. I pray that they would be able to praise you in the midst of it. I pray that you would work in their lives. And God, we know that you do that. It seems oftentimes in those places, that's where the gospel is being spread quickest. But God, even in our country here, our place where we live, there could come a time soon where we struggle with something similar. God, I pray that your church would be bold for the sake of the gospel. I I pray that we wouldn't look at those who are lost, those who are coming at us as our enemy so much as those who need to hear the gospel. You are the righteous judge. You, You are the one being sinned against. I am I am not. And yes, a day of judgment is coming, but what you are showing us by letting us live and to continue on is that you're a God of mercy. And while we still live until Christ returns, we are called to share that good news with our enemy, with those who persecute us, with our family, with our friends. And so God, give us a compassion for that. Help us to be faithful, to be able to speak boldly of Jesus as you give us opportunity to do that. Help us to be kind and loving to our neighbors and to our family. And God, I pray that you would use that in their life and that they would see their need for Jesus and that Jesus is there for them. God, I pray that you would help us to respond to your word now. Help us to sing this song. I do pray for those people who've walked in here today just struggling this week. Maybe they are facing persecution. God, I pray that as we sing this song, they'd be able to sing it and mean it, and to praise you through it. God, help us now to worship you well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.